Welcome to FRT episode 88. I'm Brad Carr of the IF, once again in the suburbs of Washington, and today we'll be speaking across the Atlantic. Our guest today is Johanna Leibeck-Lalia, Executive Advisor at Nordea, and joining us from Stockholm. Johanna is a leading expert in central bank digital currencies, and of course in the jurisdiction that has emerged as the leader in this space. And if you follow IIF webinars as well as our podcast, you may recall seeing Johanna when we discussed the Bank of England's CBDC discussion paper back in May 2020. I should also mention that Johanna is also a member of the Banking Stakeholder Group at the European Banking Authority. Johanna, thank you for joining us and welcome to FRT. Thank you very much for having me again. Indeed, and uh, there's a lot to talk about. Before we jump into some of the CBD space, I've started a lot of our recent episodes with a view to the local conditions in the context of dealing with the pandemic. Uh, and of course, Sweden was one country that took quite a severe health impact in the early stages. Uh, but a lot has happened since then, both in the health outcomes and in the economy there and around the world. Just wondering if I could firstly ask you to share a little bit about what the conditions are like in Stockholm today. Starting off what everybody is, is thinking about now is actually that finally winter has come to Stockholm. And living in a, a country where it's basically dark the whole winter because of proximity to the polar circle, Having some snow and some severe cold days is very nice. Everybody is outside. But on a more serious note, the pandemic situation, I agree with you. Sweden took a very different path in the spring of 2020. I would say that over the last months, the strategy of Sweden has become more close to that of the other countries. We are more restricted, uh, working more from home, wearing face masks in public and all of these things still the levels of deaths are, are unacceptably high, of course, and particularly among the elderly. And that is concerning a lot of people and actually giving political repercussions as well. And in terms of the, the business impact of people out and about in the streets, um, how are you you're seeing daily life? It, it's actually quite empty. And I, I think it's fair to say that this pandemic has struck differently depending on what business you are in. If you are in financial services, uh, as I am in a bank, Basically, our world can go on exactly as before. We have more uh, digital meetings with our customers, but we can still sell our products. If you run, let's say, a restaurant or, or some, some holiday home, you're much more in trouble. And of course, we are starting to see severe problems and, and bankruptcies rising uh, in those sectors. So I think it's very sort of different depending on which part of the economy you serve. That is true for most countries, I guess. Absolutely. And at the risk of being a bit repetitive of, of themes I've talked about elsewhere in FRT, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for a point that Alison Rose of NatWest made last year that uh, as a bank, we've made investments in technology and digital channels for probably 10 years. And the story of 2020 and now beyond is that customers have suddenly started using them. And, and that's a very different picture, as you say, across a lot of other industries. I also think of a comment that Megan Green of Harvard has made previously about how the uptake of new technologies and the translation of those into productivity data has historically been very, very slow with significant lags for human adoption. But of course, the last year has presented a new experience where we've been forced to adopt, but as you say, probably with very uneven outcomes depending on uh, the industry, but also depending on probably the access to, to technology. And I know we'll, we'll talk about this a little later, but one of the themes that you know I've heard people like Stefan Ingvers talk about previously in a country like Sweden is you have magnificent connectivity to digital infrastructure in the cities, but you have some very remote areas of the country that are probably not so fortunate in what's been provided to them thus far. Yeah, it's improving. I mean, Sweden is, geographically speaking, a quite big country in a European context. I think we're the third or fourth largest in geographical terms. Of course, we're not a lot of people. 
there's very few of us, particularly live in the southern parts. And yes, there are rural areas that still have problem with access. But I would argue that all of the Nordic countries are very advanced as it comes to using digital services, uh, financial or otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. And that probably gives us a really good segue into to the discussion I want to have with you about CBDCs, that you, know, you are in a region of the world that has been a leader in this space. You are a, a region that is very technologically advanced. At the same time, it does throw up some of these challenges of, of ensuring that we don't have financial exclusion and that we have connectivity for, uh, for all. Um, but perhaps if I could start with a, a very open, um, open question to you, Johanna. You know, I'm interested how you see the CBDC landscape today, um, in particular in Europe, and you've had the Riksbank as the early pioneers, more recently the ECB signalled its interest in this space as well. But how do you view the landscape? Well, first of all, let me say, I do not find it strange at all uh, that central banks are looking into this issue. And, it, it, and it's absolutely not surprising to me that Riksbank, the Riksbank was one of the first uh, movers in this space. I mean, the cash usage among the population has been declining for decades, basically. If I look at the latest numbers from the Riksbank, I think some 9% of all purchases were made with cash. Actually, and that is not so known, our uh, neighboring country, Norway, has come even further. They have some 3 or 4% of purchases now being done uh, by cash. If I compare that to continental Europe, uh, where still 70% of purchases are made with cash, the picture is very different uh, across Europe. But for me, I mean, my interest in this subject started actually at the time when the Riksbank initiated their project on the Ekrona, their version of, of the central bank digital currency. Then there wasn't so much interest, maybe just some interest from our, our, our Nordic neighbors. But following uh, the report by the Bank of England, and in particular, the report by the ECB in October last year, truly spiked the interest across Europe. I mean, it's been discussed in the European Parliament and uh, along the, with the EU Commission. And, and I think that shows very clearly in the recent report that the BIS, the Bank for Settlements, published, I think, last week, which was their third survey on the state of CBDCs across the globe. Uh, and in fact, some 86% of the central banks they surveyed were taking up uh, work on the CBDCs. So a huge uh, increase in the interest over the last months. It has been really dramatic. And at the time of that ECB report you mentioned in October, I think around then we saw a real flurry of activity. There was the, the BIS group of a number of central banks. The Bank of Japan put something out as well. But I'm also um, really intrigued and, and reminded when you talk about the level of, of cashlessness in Sweden and compared to other, other parts of Europe. Last time I was fortunate enough to travel to Sweden, it really struck me that in my two days there, I don't think I had to get uh, any local cash at all. Everything was completely uh, electronic, completely cashless. And then I flew from Stockholm to Frankfurt and had a taxi driver that demanded to be paid in cash, coffee shops that would demand to be paid in cash. It was like you'd step back 20 years in time. Um, but such has been, I suppose, the, the different trajectories and probably the different uh, emphasis placed on privacy historically that has manifested into people's willingness to take up some of those channels. Yes, yes, indeed. And it's actually the fact that quite a few shops and businesses do not accept cash as payment when you walk around Stockholm, simply yes. because it's too costly and too risky for them. So that's the, the discussion we are having now in Sweden. Indeed. Um, if we distinguish retail from wholesale CBDC models, and, and in particular we'll probably focus more on retail, Interested in, in what you see as being the key implications for consumers? Quite a lot, actually. I mean, let's start by just acknowledging that 
wholesale CBDCs exist already today. I mean, we give collateral, we as banks give collateral to the central bank and we get liquidity back for that. That is a CBDC for a wholesale purpose. So that exists today. And I think your question is also, I think one of the big ones we we're also having across Europe is the question why we need a CBDC. What is the motive behind a CBDC? And actually, there are some, um, to start with the sort of mean part of this discussion, uh, when the Riksbank had their consultation a couple of years back, uh, the Swedish Financial Supervisory Authority even said that this seems like uh, an end seeking a means. And uh, one of my favorite persons, which is Augustine Karstens, who is the managing director of the IS, he gave a speech on CBDCs. And there he said, the question is not, do we need CBDCs? But rather, can central banks grasp the opportunity in this technological development? But going back to the motives, I think we need to distinguish between the different countries. When we survey uh, various countries across the world, we can see that many of the pilots have actually occurred in the emerging economies. And their motivation is very different from the advanced economies, I would argue, because they have a population that is relatively unbanked. They do not have access to financial services at all. So their goal and their motive is a lot about financial inclusion, which we, of course, support. In the advanced economies, it's, it, the, many different motives have been given, in fact. Uh, and I have a list here, I think, of seven or eight different motives. So let's go through them one by one and we can discuss them. Yes, please. Well, the first one is digital inclusion. With the technological development, we know there are vulnerable groups that feel uncomfortable using digital services and also digital financial services. And we see those groups uh, among our customers all the time. They need much more support uh, than other customer groups. The question for a CBDC is then, will that be easier to use than the other available payment methods that we have today? Uh, and I'm not convinced about that. Um, other motives that have been given is that there needs to be a trust in the payment system, and that's why we need a CBDC. Well, if we survey trust for various payment methods in Sweden, actually the trust in cards is higher than the uh, trust in cash, which is interesting because cash is actually issued by an institution that cannot go bankrupt, i.e. the central bank. Um, there's also been talk about the dependency on private payment solutions and that everybody needs an account with a private company. And that should be the motivation for a CBDC. Well, um, some people also in the political uh, parties in, in Sweden would argue that we should not have private banks. Uh, I disagree with that view, <laughs> unsurprisingly. Uh, it is a valid view to take, uh, but I disagree with it. The way we have organized our financial systems is that we allow private banks, but they are heavily regulated, they are heavily supervised, and they are all under a deposit guarantee system to guarantee the depositor's money. Um, there's been talk about lack of competition if the central banks don't do this. Uh, and of course, payment systems are prone to economies of scope and scale. We know that. Investments in infrastructure are expensive. On the other hand, the competition between banks are fierce. If we did not have uh, competition in the payments market, we would see low levels of innovation, we would see high costs for the consumers, and we don't see that today. So I don't see a lack of competition. 
there comes then comes a fairly interesting argument. It's about the crisis preparedness and the stability of the system. Because, of course, all technological systems can break down. We know that. If it's gone for like one or two hours, it's probably best to fix it and get the system up running again because it's not very easy to shift your bills and, and your salary payments in a few hours. But let's say the system is gone for weeks. How should we pay each other in a digitalized world? And I do think that is something that the governments should be thinking about. On the other hand, if the electricity goes and, and the payment systems go down, a lot of other problems will occur. We will need water, food and heat. And those are more, more basic needs. Uh, but still, it's something to think about. And on top of that, of course, a CBDC also needs electricity. So they will also be out. Um, and then comes an argument that I think is very difficult uh, to analyze uh, and something that the Central Bank of Sweden and also the ECB is talking a lot about, and that is to ensure a continued access to a public means of payment. So today people are holding cash, which is in fact a claim on the central bank. Everything else is a claim on a private bank. All your deposits and savings and what have you are, are claims on, on private banks. So one has to ask uh, oneself, is the reason people are holding cash, in fact, that they do want to have a claim on the central bank, or is it something else? And what the central bank is saying, and I do think we should analyze this, we have never been in a financial system where it has, it has not been possible for a private individual not to have a claim on the central bank. So that would be something quite new and something that we would need to really think through. But then again, we need to balance that against the risks and costs of a CBDC that we will come into. So many motives have been given. Not all of them are fully valid, but some are really interesting and should be analysed further in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've given a lot of great food for thought there. And I think a number of those motives you highlight, you know, there's some interesting debates you can have within a closed system in a domestic kind of context. You know, I, I think probably the, the piece where I think CBDCs, the driver that I think is making CBDCs increasingly inevitable is the external competition across nation states. For instance, where the PBOC in China is, is certainly one that is aggressively following this path. Uh, we heard Christian Carlo, former CFTC chairman here in the US, talk about where the US dollar emerged with its primacy, where once previously the Spanish dollar was the dominant currency, mainly for its ease of, of use, its convenience, its divisibility into different pieces, that citing those attributes as being uh, valuable attributes of a currency that if somebody such as the PBOC makes the early running, then it, it perhaps sparks a bit of a need for others to copycat. Or indeed, if, if somebody outside of the public sector, um, such as the initiatives we've seen with Libra or now DM, um, I, I think there's probably uh, something of a, if, if not compelling, at least a, a significant argument for CBDCs as a defensive mechanism, perhaps for central banks to, to head off some of those uh, other new challenges, perhaps. But when we bring it back down into the, the benefits the motives within uh, within a society, within an economy. Um, I think each of the, the reservations or the questions you raise are, are really valid pause, pause for thought, perhaps. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I think it's very clear that the motivation for the ECB is driven by the EU's sort of ambition to have sovereignty of their currency and the global standing of the euro is something they come back to consistently. And we also have this sort of recent project of, of uh, some 20 commercial banks of the European Payment Initiative, because to be quite uh, open, some people in the EU find it upsetting that all of our card systems are in fact American systems, mm. and they don't like that at all. 
so that is one of the drivers clearly behind this. And then, of course, is the question, is it, is it valid? Would I, as a private individual, really want to put my payment assets in a sort of uh, asset that could fluctuate towards what I get my payments in? I get my, my salary in Swedish krona. I pay my bills in Swedish krona. Why would I put my money in another currency and be exposed to FX risks? I don't see that as, as super compelling, in all honesty. That exact point was a theme that was raised by Congressman during the congressional hearings about Libra, uh, I recall, and it's, uh, I think, a really important point. So maybe if I can take some of those, those points you've raised around the, the motives or the yep. you know, questions and concerns, and I want to link those a little bit to, to something from the ECB's recent public consultation on a potential digital euro, in which they had requested, uh, or they'd noted what were the most commonly requested features that, um, that citizens or consumers perhaps uh, would want. And it was striking that, that privacy of payments with 41% of responses was the, the most common, uh, followed by security, cited by 17%, and pan-European reach with 10%. And I was just interested in your thoughts as to whether those, those results, those findings are in line with perhaps what you would expect in terms of consumer preferences or, or whether any of that surprised you. I'm not easily surprised, I guess. <laughs> no, but I, I, there's a serious discussion under this. I think we need to distinguish between privacy and anonymity. And, and sometimes in a lot of, of panels and, and, and reports, I see those two concepts being mixed up. Because I do understand from a consumer perspective that what you want is security and privacy. However, if we start moving into anonymous CBDCs, which, by the way, neither the ECB nor the Swedish Central Bank has ruled out yet, I can say from my bank's perspective, we would not be super happy about anonymous CBDCs. And that is for the obvious reasons, and it's combating financial crime, anti-money laundering and terrorist financing and tax evasions and all those other crimes that we spend so much time on uh, trying to, 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 to find and report. So I'm not uh, surprised at all about that. And, and also, in fact, in his speech, Gustin Karstens mentioned this as well, and, he, and his view was that a purely anonymous CBDC will simply not work for these reasons. However, you can get privacy uh, because you are able to rely on your bank or your central bank with your data, but you don't want it to get around all across the economy to other businesses or other third parties. So that's where we have to distinguish privacy versus anonymity. Uh, my own view, and that reflects, of course, many of the responses that was received by the ECB from, from industry associations, was on the potential disintermediation of banks and the financial stability issues. So, so let's talk more about that, because I think that's, I, I share your view, I, I think that's a, a really critical piece. And indeed, one of the key design considerations for a potential CBDC in the different forms that it could potentially take is whether the end consumer or citizen is fronting directly to the central bank. Uh, and thereby disintermediating the commercial banks, or whether you have a model which some others have, have talked about, and and some of the you know, the early drafts that have been circulated for comment in in different countries, where the commercial bank remains in essence as a type of conduit really for, for customers, remains the one providing the customer service and and absolves the uh, the central bank of that, but also means that the the banks are providing the identity function is in some ways perhaps able to maintain customer deposits as a form of funding in that intermediation role. Now, when, when Stefan Ingvers spoke with us back on FRT episode 42, he emphasised a, a right that, that you've already raised, um, this notion of the ability of the citizen to hold a claim on the central bank, the obligation of the central bank to essentially preserve and modernise that, that right. 
Um, is that approach still, you think, a, a key feature in the, the e-krona design in Sweden? Absolutely. I would say the central banks in Europe that are working on these projects all are sort of experimenting with various hybrid models. And having worked for the central banks for almost 13 years of my life, I can clearly see that central banks do not want to be part of the sort of daily uh, nitty gritty of banking, meaning that they do not want to do the know your customer or the ongoing due diligence or, or not even the transaction monitoring and would rather have either banks or payment service providers to do that. However, irrespective of the model you come up with, the CBDC is still a claim on the central bank. It cannot be part of the deposits with the bank. Because if it is part of the deposits of the bank and a part of our account structure and our balance sheet, then it's not a claim on the central bank anymore. Then it's a claim on us. And then it's back to regular deposits, in fact. So irrespective of the type of model and these hybrid models uh, where banks actually do the work, uh, it's still a claim on the central bank. And that means that the risk of disintermediation of banks is still there. And going back to this report by the six central banks and, and the BIS that you mentioned, the group that are working together on this, um, they issued three foundational principles in their first report, where the first one says basically do no harm. So what they're saying is that we will not come up with a CBDC that will compromise monetary and financial stability. That is one of their foundational principles, and I fully support that. And all central banks are now trying to find ways of making sure that the CBDC does not mean that a lot of households and corporates move their deposits to the central bank. And the two, I think, main proposals that I have seen is either by putting in a limit on how much CBDC you as a person can hold. Let's say you're allowed to hold, I don't know, a thousand digital euros or a thousand ekronas or some form of tired remuneration. So the more you hold, the less interest you get. The problem I see, and, and this goes back to, to almost a philosophical question on what is money. Um, and you and I know that in order for it to be money, you want it to be comparable. So it should be expressed in a unit of account. And you want it to be stable over time, the value. And you also want it to be a means of payment. This is, of course, also why DM is going to run into problem because they cannot guarantee the store of value, the stability over time. But going back to, to these proposals of limiting the access to CBDCs, what if I am really unsure of my bank? I feel very unsure if I want to keep my deposits there. And in fact, I'm so unsure that I am willing to pay 1.1 of my deposits with my commercial bank in order to get one or the digital euros or, or e-kronas, then we have actually riveted the basis of what is money because we do not have a stable money, a stable currency anymore. And that is my concern. And I don't foresee this being a problem in normal times because in normal times, people are happy and just go about their life. But as soon as there is stress in the financial system, either for one individual bank or for the financial system as such, I fear that we will see a movement of people withdrawing their private deposits and shifting into CBDCs. I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's, you, know, you make the point that it's, it's a real issue in a crisis type scenario where it could be essentially exacerbating a run, not only on an individual bank, but on the system at large. 
maybe I'm too pessimistic, but I'm actually concerned it, it could be an issue in, in more normal and peaceful times as well, in the sense that um, not perhaps as a stability issue, but more as a contractionary issue, that you know, there's got to be a significant chunk of the population, I think, that would say, particularly in a low interest rate environment, faced with the opportunity of leaving your money in a commercial bank and earning 0.1% versus sticking it in a central bank directly and earning zero, I think there'd be a chunk that would move their, their funds in that scenario. And, and that concerns me that when we then relate it back to the really significant post-crisis regulatory reforms, the liquidity coverage ratio, the net stable funding ratio, you know, those place a, a much greater value on bank funding that is sourced from the so-called stable re- retail deposit base. Um, so I think there is a concern there about uh, a leakage of the, the part of the funding profile that banks have been very much steered to, to concentrate on. I think probably rightly steered uh, in, the, in the wake of the last crisis. But it, it does pose a question of, of firstly, you know, are we concerned about the future of those bowl three liquidity metrics and how they'll hold up in this environment? But also, in the context of the post-COVID economic recovery, you know, presumably we still want the commercial banks to be doing the lending in the economy. And if their funding basis is going to receive either, firstly, a, a contracting impact, even in stable times, as I suggest, or at least have a greater level of volatility at the moment we're going through economic cycles, That's got to be a concern, I would have thought, in terms of the the wider economic impact, would you say? No, I totally agree with you on on several points. I mean, if we would have a situation where where both households and corporates uh, move out their deposits, we would immediately break uh, the NSFR uh, and the LCR. And of course, those rules can be changed. That is actually what the central bank said when we started talking to them about this, that we do not want to break these liquidity requirements. Uh, and I agree with you. I think they are one of the most important parts of the post-crisis uh, regulatory move that we have seen. Uh, and of course, as banks, we could move to more market-based financing. And, and of course, it's always good to have a diverse uh, financing of the bank's balance sheet I, I'm with uh, corporate and retail deposit as well as market financing spread across the world. But that is not normally what the central banks want. So clearly, uh, the liquidity metrics are, is a problem. Then uh, you bring up the issue of the credit extension to the economy, because if our money that we uh, normally extend to our customers, uh, either to households or or to corporates, are now stuck with the central bank, there are two options. So either the central bank can lend it back to us through normal monetary policy operations, and then everything would be back uh, to where it was. The problem is that when banks borrow money from the central bank, they, of course, have to post collateral for that loan. So that would mean that credits to the economy will be more expensive going forward. And the other option, of course, uh, which might feel a bit futuristic, is that the central bank themselves start lending to the economy. But that was actually the case uh, in the 1950s in Sweden, uh, where the central bank extended uh, housing loans uh, to some people. So it wouldn't be so strange. What I would like to see. I mean, irrespective of good times or bad times, I want a regulatory framework that works both in upturns and downturns. We cannot just change the rules because it's up, you know, good times or bad times. We need a framework that works for all economic sites. Absolutely. And it's something that I think as an industry we've been consistently consistently calling for, that we need to have um, that stability in the, the regime. It's an interesting point you make about the scenario where perhaps the central banks, as an alternative, would have to lend directly into the economy. I think that would be a politically untenable solution in most economies at the moment. Maybe conditions will change um, 
and as issues of inequality are reflected on in a different light post-COVID perhaps, but I still think that's some some distance off before we'd see a a political acceptance of that. One other point I wanted to pick up when we talk a bit about the the funding base, and uh, and it was a point that you made in the, the webinar that we had with the Bank of England last year, in that whilst I've tended to focus a lot on the retail deposit funding and the implications in terms of those LCR and NSFR metrics, you made, I think, a really important point that perhaps we need to actually be more conscious of the risk of corporate deposits leaking away from the, the commercial banks, and particularly given that that's a, a class of depositor that is typically not covered by deposit insurance. And I was wondering if I could get you to elaborate a little further on this point and perhaps on the use case for corporates that might shift their holdings to a direct CBDC. Sure. I don't see it as as a very, uh, very difficult conclusion to come to. I mean, if you are a corporate, you are in fact covered by deposit insurance. I mean, the European level is 100,000 euros, but the corporates normally have a lot more deposits than that. I mean, for a regular person like you and I, we rarely have 100,000 euros in our accounts. (laughs) Uh, That would be strange. (laughs) Uh, so we are fine in terms of a bank running into trouble, and we will be, of course, compensated uh, through the deposit guarantee schemes. But a corporate holding more than 100,000 euros, and that is not unusual for corporates to hold so much, they will not be covered. Uh, so that is one reason why they would move more quickly than regular households. The other is, of course, that normal corporates have people employed to see where do I get the best deal on my money. Where are the opportunities? That is something that normal households do not look out for. So I think there are two reasons why corporate deposits might shift out quicker uh, than household deposits, in fact. And then you had a second question. Why would corporates uh, be happy to use a CBDC? I think the answer is today, if you want to have it in cash for some reason, that carries huge transaction costs and not to mention the risks. So it's not an option for a corporate to move their deposits with a private bank into cash because it's simply not doable for physical and risk reasons. However, if there is a CBDC that is available without restrictions to corporates, it would be a lot easier because it's also electronically stored values. Well, I wonder actually if you're alluding there to one of the, a trade-off that every everyone faces, retail and, and corporates alike, that uh, in the old world, it's been a case of I can stick my money in the bank and yes, I'm taking on the credit risk of the bank where I've deposited, but it is physically secure for me. The bank has assumed that responsibility um, as my alternative that if I want to, to use Stephen Ingvers' language, uh, directly hold a claim on the central bank, then I'm needing to hold my banknote somewhere. I'm needing to either get a private safe, stick them under the mattress, whatever it might be. I need to in some way assume the the physical security responsibility. And one of the things that a CBDC perhaps is that absolves the depositor of that responsibility, that they are now able to have, um, not have the credit risk on a commercial bank, be exposed directly to the central bank, but also not have to take on the physical security responsibilities with that, which in some ways you could argue is a great social good for that particular depositor or investor, but it has consequences for the design and operation of the financial system that we have. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to, to perhaps um, conclude, uh, Johanna, with, with a, a, I guess a sense of CBDCs in a broader context. They are a major development, but we can't look at them purely in isolation. Uh, there are dependencies on telecommunications and broadband connectivity, electricity, interoperability with other networks such as digital identity. 
a number of the issues that, that you touched on uh, right when we started talking about the, the COVID context and, and conditions today. Interested in your thoughts around whether there are a particular points of connectivity or interoperability with other systems that you would most emphasise? That's a very interesting question. To be quite honest, I do think that banks have not succeeded in providing cheap and quick payments cross-border. They are simply too slow and too expensive today, and not only the money remittances, but also by using the correspondent banking systems. That is a part where we we have not succeeded, uh, to be quite open. Um, And that also means that if we have several central banks involved in CBDCs, or in fact, by having instant um, central bank payment systems, the RGGS systems, that means that they could do the cross-border payments also cross currencies. And that would, of course, change uh, the, the way we make payments across the globe. But that also connects to the issue of uh, the DMs, uh, or if a central bank is an early mover, like, like the People's Bank of China, as you said, would that be a sort of currency that we will use to make cross-border payments? And I don't think, as I said before, private individuals, but maybe corporates doing imports and exports across the globe we need to find efficient payment mechanisms also cross-border and cross-currency. And in fact, that is one thing that we are working on in the Nordics because we are so we are small countries, as we already said, um, and we are very connected cross-borders. I mean, people live and work in different countries across the Nordics. We are very close, also for historical reasons. Um, but still, it takes four days uh, and costs like $10 to make a payment to my half-sister in Copenhagen. That is not a tenable solution. Um, so we are working on a project called P27, and the 27 stands for the number of million people that live in the Nordic region, where we would want to make one payment system of the Nordic area. Uh, so you can make payments uh, across borders and also across currencies, uh, both in batch and in, in instant. Uh, and that will be launched later on this year, uh, starting off with, with easy payments, of course. But this is something we need to develop I would say, on a global scale. Here we need to improve. We definitely do. And I think the CPMI FSB series of reports last year about the, the roadmap for improving cross-border payments is, is really timely and significant in that context. I, I kind of link a little of what you've described there to, you know, we see um, innovations in, in trade finance, and it's one that the BIS's Hong Kong Innovation Hub uh, made a big focus on in their tech sprint last year. Um, but we also see innovations like what the, the PBOC has been doing, which I think most of us assume has a linkage across the, the Chinese One Belt, One Road network, and that we may see uh, dramatic growth in the use of, of that digital currency in that context. Um, but there is also, you know, uh, I think, the, the linkage to digital identity. And when I think of the CPMI piece, um, certainly that's one that, that we at the IF have a big emphasis on, and that we need to be, be better and smarter at not only how we marry up payment systems and ensure uh, uh, connectivity across borders. But we need to bring national identity systems along the road concurrent to that. And certainly in the case of the Nordic countries, things like Bank ID, I think, uh, has been one of the real world-leading developments uh, in that space also. It's interesting you bring that up because in the last uh, digital finance strategy of the EU Commission that was published during the fall, one of the things they want to accomplish is actually an interoperable electronic ID And that is, of course, a great long-term vision, but there are several other problems that we need to solve. We cannot just put a piece of legislation and say now it's interoperable. Uh, There's a lot of things that need to be done in order for that to work. So the way uh, AML legislation works today, 
is that we as a bank have to identify our customer. We cannot trust the verification of an identity done by somebody else. So let's say we have a Portuguese national that wants to open an account uh, with Nordea. We cannot trust the verification of the identity that was made by a Portuguese bank, for example. We need to be sure that this is the right person and that the identity isn't stolen or something like that. So what we need is a system, a technological system, like a lookup system, where we could ask questions into the system and see, is this the right person? Has his or hers identity been stolen? Get the answer back. Because it doesn't mean that we all need to have the same uh, bank ID system around the world, but we need to have a system where we can be sure that this is right and also liabilities are sort of clear in case there's a malfunction somewhere. And on top of that, uh, just to make everything complicated, in fact, if you want to have a national electronic ID solution, you need to have some kind of number that is unique for that individual. And that is something not all countries have. I mean, in Sweden, we have personal numbers. Uh, in the US, you have your social security numbers. Uh, but the way we use our personal numbers in Sweden is probably going beyond many of the other countries. It is used everywhere. If you don't have a personal number, you cannot go into a library, basically. It's used everywhere. And that is why the bank ID, the electronic ID solution, has been so successful, because we know exactly who everybody is. You've almost... Um read out the, the summary of the Open Digital Trust Initiative that the IF has been working on together with the Open ID Foundation. And certainly our emphasis has been very much on interoperability. Um, we've led a, an interoperability working group within that project that I went in thinking this is all going to be about the interoperability of different identity systems. And I quick, pretty quickly learnt it's also about the interoperability of identity with payments and with open banking and with so many other things and about the connectivity across different sectors, um, which is actually the topic that uh, we discussed with Greg Wolfen on our previous episode. But also you, you referred there to the, the legal framework and the liability, and that's a really important part that um, the IEF will very shortly be publishing the, the principles that we've developed uh, in that space for digital identity. Well, Johanna, we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, you've given us a great overview of the emerging world of CBDCs, and especially with the insights that you bring from one of the most forerunning jurisdictions in this space. In attempting to summarise or capture some key takeaways, I just want to run through a few of the points that you've shared, very generous observations you've shared with us. And, and firstly, I think it's really revealing the, the level of cashlessness. I know this has been catching up throughout the world through the course of the, the COVID pandemic, but even before then, the fact that you've had the environment in Sweden where only 9% of purchases were in cash, only 3% in Norway, uh, it is really a world-leading model and one that it's not surprising that it has led to some of the conversations we've seen uh, with the Reichsbank. Uh, but also, I think it, it does tie into the question you posed of, of what the motive is. And it was a number of very interesting motives uh, or potential arguments that you captured. Some very interesting questions, some very interesting doubts in some, on some of those, uh, and I really appreciate that discussion. Um, I think really important the point you made about the particular threat of people that might be moving their funds at a time of, of crisis-type conditions, as well as perhaps what we discussed, what that might mean for funding stability through other parts of the cycle as well. Really interesting questions about how the funding gets into the economy. Um, your point that, you know, perhaps, I, I think probably a politically untenable scenario for now, but perhaps that it forces central banks to lend directly into the economy. But I think probably more likely the, the other scenario you raised, that the central banks will need to engage in an increased level of market operations to get the funding back to the commercial loans that collateral is needed in such cases and that has a knock-on impact for the cost of credit into the economy. I think also a really important point of clarification that you raised about the role of deposit insurance and how this shapes behaviour, also about the limits that apply in Europe 
a deposit insurance limit of ten of a hundred thousand euros for corporates and retail. Corporates, of course, typically holding a lot more than that. Uh, the bulk being outside of the scope of deposit insurance. Corporates also having very sophisticated treasuries, trying to maximise returns while managing their risks. Uh, their counterparty risk, I think, is a really important item to have in mind. And lastly, that P27 project you mentioned for one payment system across Nordic. Um, really interesting to see that one coming this year, and it's one that we'll watch with a lot of interest. So, Johanna, thanks for joining us. It's been great to have you on FRT and really enjoyed all of your insights. I have been so happy to take part in this interesting subject. I will continue to follow it, as I guess you will too. Indeed we will. No, thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure to speak with you. And looking ahead on FRT, just a few things I want to quickly highlight. We're going to look at digitalisation in the Middle East and North Africa. Speaking with Amir Atia Ahmed of Bank Misra in Cairo on an interesting piece he's written about Egypt's national digitalisation strategy, but also together with Yuri Miznik, Chief Technology Officer at First Abu Dhabi Bank. We're going to talk about anti-money laundering and financial crime with Adrian Delacasa, former secondee to the IF, and indeed he, he wrote a number of our previous publications on AML and on digital identity, uh, but he's now back home in Munich at Unicredit. And we're also going to look at some of the, the FSB and BIS work plans for the year in more detail. So please stay safe. Join us for those upcoming episodes. I'm Brad Carr. Thanks for being with us on FRT.